Welcome to This Is My Story, where everyday women share their stories of struggles and setbacks that have shaped their lives. I'm your host, Melissa Touch. Today, I'm chatting with Jessie Caldwell, my sister-in-law. Jessie wears many hats. She's a devoted wife, a nurturing mother, and a corporate learning executive. At just eight months old, Jessie's life took a profound turn as she found her forever home through adoption. At 16, the sudden loss of her mother reshaped the landscape of her world. But Jessie, being the resilient soul she is, pressed on. In the chapters of her life that followed, Jessie tied the knot and welcomed three beautiful children into her life, including a nonverbal autistic son. Her story is a testament to the twists and turns life throws at us, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Before we jump into today's episode, don't forget to follow us on our social media and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find all our social media links as well as more information about us at thisismystorypodcast.com. My name is Jessie Caldwell, and this is my story. Every time we've been together, we've always had either my kids or your kids at some point all over us, all in the way. So we've never really gotten to have, you know, a long conversation about some of this stuff. So nice to to get to chat with you as, as an, you know, have an actual adult conversation without kids around. Look at us. It took us <laughs> 10 years. We're here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So we're going to jump right in. First thing, you were adopted at eight months old. So can you share your story of adoption with me? Absolutely. So, you know, it's pretty straightforward. I was just a little itty bitty baby. My mom and dad wanted to have more kids, but they weren't able to for, you know, health reasons. And, you know, my family, my mom and dad, I should say my, my adoptive mom and dad, they were older. So my mom was 48, 49 when they adopted me. And my dad is just a, a little bit younger than her. So uh, you have my brother and my sister and my biological uncle worked for my dad's oil and gas company and his wife's, I think cousin, no, his wife's sister is my biological mother. So they're, I don't know if it's like my first aunt and uncle or like a, you know, second aunt and uncle, but they knew mom and dad wanted to have little ones, at least another one. And they weren't able to, and they knew that my biological mother, she was 19 when she gave birth to me. So she was a teen mom and was not really able to give me the type of life that, you know, she wanted for her kiddo. And they did all that fun stuff in the background and got the lawyers involved and did a private adoption. And my dad was actually away at business trip. He was up in Maine doing some lobster fishing with some clients they were trying to close a deal with. And he got the call after being there, not even a full day, that um, the paperwork and stuff went through early and time to pick Jesse up. So he made a beeline back to West Virginia to get me. So yeah, I think I've known since the day I was old enough to really comprehend anything that I was adopted. My mom and dad uh, used to always tell me that They got to hand choose me that all these other kids, you know, their parents got stuck with them, but they got to pick me out, which I thought was pretty cool. So I've known from the beginning that I was adopted. 
Obviously, you know who your biological parents were because of the close tie with them. Did you actually interact with them any growing up or like actually know that's who they were? Or did you find that out later as an adult? I found that out uh, in my adult years. So for example, I didn't know that the folks that were my biological aunt and uncle were my biological aunt and uncle that we didn't really talk about it. My biological mother, I've never met her in person. I know who she is and I know, you know, bits and pieces of her story. My biological father passed away probably about a decade ago of, from cancer, but they were never together. He was a lot older than her, which is kind of creepy if you really think about it, because he was almost 10 years her senior. So I knew about them, you know, in my much older adult years, but I didn't know anything about them during the time I was, you know, my formative years growing up, high school, any of that stuff. So I know that adoptive children can often struggle with feeling unwanted or just with a self-identity because they don't have anybody that looks like them or they don't really have a grasp on their history or they struggle with self-worth sometimes, even though I know your parents sounds like from the get-go, that wasn't an issue because they were like, we got to choose you. But did you ever struggle with your identity and your sense of worth or belonging during your formative years? I would say for sure, especially around those those teen years, you know, you're growing up and you're starting to realize as you are maturing that, you know, you know the whole nature versus nurture comes into play and really learning about why you are the way that you are, why you look the way you do, you know, why you, you know, as a teenager, why you get an acne and it's just these little things, nuances, and you don't have anyone that, that you can be like, Oh, mom did that. Mom had that. Or, Oh, my siblings, they had that. So that's just our DNA. That's how we're made up. So I, I didn't have that. And I don't think I realized that it impacted me in those formative years until I was a mom. That's when I think the realization hit me that it it did impact me maybe a lot more than I thought. I always was enamored with who looks like what parent. And I know I've said that when I met all of you guys for the first time, I was like, oh, Chad, you look like this one. And, and oh my gosh, Melissa just looks like this one. And, and I just thought that was so cool because um, I'd never seen that. That wasn't normal for me. So my first blood relative was my daughter, Janie, who looked exactly like me. She is a spitting image of you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so is it Wimberly? And Corbin's got a little bit more of Chad. Mm-hmm. You can definitely tell who their mama is for sure. So I think looking back on it, there was a lot of, am I wanted? I don't fit. You know, I jokingly say that you could tell who did not fit in the puzzle on family photos because all of my family are like super dark complected, dark hair, very, you know, and then you have me who I'm super pale, bright, white, blonde hair. So, you know, which one obviously was not the, the, the the milkman delivered. (laughs) (laughs) So I definitely think that it had a lot to do with I don't know if it's so much feeling wanted, but I think I had attachment issues. And I think it also goes into, you know, when I lost my adoptive mom too. I think that all kind of plays into that. Am I wanted and everybody leaves and why don't they stay? And so that was really something that I had to work through as I got older. So before we get into the loss of your mother, like you said, you have children of your own now. They're your your first blood relatives Two of the three look exactly like you. 
I know when Janie was born, that was like just a thrill to to be like, yeah. I can see myself in her. Somebody looks like me finally. Yep. But how has that experience of adoption influenced how you parent? Oh, I think making sure that the kiddos know that, you know, I had my mom always saying, oh, well, we handpicked you and the other kids got stuck with you. I think it was almost on the opposite side of, you know, we, we wanted to have you and we tried to have you and letting them know that they're loved and they're important and that there's a bond between like Janie and I, I mean, with all three of them, but you know, her being my firstborn too, I still think there's that little bit of a bond, um, you know, becoming a first time mom with her. And I just think really being able to let her know that I see myself in you, but I also know that you're so much more than just my DNA and looking like me. There's so many things that you can do. And I just can't wait to be that annoying, nagging mom that I didn't get to have <laughs> going through <laughs> college and you know, getting to plan a wedding with and do all that fun stuff. So I definitely think I cling to them a little bit more than maybe I would have if I had a quote unquote normal childhood and was, you know, brought up with my same biological family. I think I just hold a little, a little special part of it more dear to my heart because I went through it under a different lens than most people. Yeah. So when you were 16, your mother died suddenly and unexpectedly. Can you take me back to that day? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Gosh, it was spring break. So we had gone out to dinner and grocery shopping, I remember, the evening before because a really bad snowstorm was supposed to move in. This is March in West Virginia, so that's pretty normal to have a crazy snowstorm to hit around that time frame. So I know that we had all gone out to eat and we did our grocery shopping and stuff. And on the way home, I remember she held my hand. You know, I'm a 16-year-old girl, so I, I think I was getting to that point where you know, when you're that teenage stage and your mom is super annoying or you know way more than your parents do. And I think I was just at that stage. And uh, and I'm like, why, why is she holding my hand for? And I remember her looking at me. And she said, I just want you to know that mom loves you. And I pray every day that I get to grow up and see you walk across that stage. <laughs> and I kind of, I mean, it was just such a random comment. And I think back to it now, I'm like, gosh, where'd that come from? So the next day, it was wee hours of the morning, my sister, Rita had come and she woke me up and it was, you know, Rita and, and Kevin lived on the other side of town. So there was no need for them to be there. So I was like, why are you guys here? And she had said, you know, dad called me. Mom's been very sick all night, really bad headache. I don't know what's going on, but I'm trying to talk her into going to the emergency room, but I just wanted to wake you up. So if you see, hey, we're our cars in the driveway, you're not scared and think something's going on. And I was like, oh, okay. So I didn't think anything of it. And I went back to sleep. And shortly thereafter, I just, the, the next memory I had was, I don't remember if it was my sister or my brother-in-law yelling up the stairs for me. So I went running down the stairs and Rita was in the bedroom. Mom was having um, a, a, like convulsions, a seizure, and we had no idea what was going on. So safe to say it didn't get better. And she said, we called the ambulance can you run outside and flag them down? And I remember grabbing my coat and running out. And during that time, that snowstorm moved in that night. So we had almost like a foot of snow that had come in. So I remember flagging the ambulance down and they went back to the bedroom downstairs when they came and put mom on the, the gurney. And I guess the only time from 
my conversation with my sister, that mom was coherent was when they were, they were rolling her past me and she came to and said, where's Jesse? Is she okay? And I'm like, mom, I'm right here. So I didn't see all of the things that my poor sister had to see. So she was coherent in that moment for me. So I, I was cautiously optimistic that everything was going to be fine. And then we've got to, at that time, it was uh, United Hospital Center here, which I know you're not familiar with this area, but um, it was a, what they call the old UHC. They had an old hospital where they have a brand new fancy one now up kind of closer to Bridgeport. So they had us there. And of course, any even still to this day, I'm pretty sure there's like no neurologist there at, at, at that small city hospital. There was nothing they could do for her. And unfortunately, it was snowing so bad that they couldn't life flight her. So they ended up having to take her in an ambulance. And we went up to Morgantown to what was called Ruby Memorial at that time. And we were there all day, like first thing in the morning and then evening time. I don't remember an awful lot. I think maybe shock and being so young, I was, I tried to, to blank some of it out, but I do remember them taking us back a couple of times to that dreaded privacy room where the doctor comes in and, you know, they had tried to do brain surgery on her. She had a brain aneurysm and there was, they said, there's nothing, if we, even if we would have brought her in the evening before that it was in such a place behind her brain stem going down, like close to where her, her spinal cord was, nobody would be able to have saved her. Nobody would have been able to see it, the imaging they had then. They tried to do surgery. It didn't work. And she, they said, you know, it was just a matter of time. You know, she had a DNR. And, you know, mom would not want to, to have lived and been a vegetable. She was not, even though she was, an you know, an older mom compared to, you know, my peers' moms, she was still a little go-getter. So she would not wanted to live in a state where she could not be, you know, able to communicate and be cognizant. We went back and everybody said goodbye. You know, my brother was there, my dad and sister and everybody said, you know, their final goodbyes. And I stood off to the, to the very end. I didn't know if I wanted to, to hug her. I didn't know what I wanted to do. It was just, there was, it was a lot. And that's a lot for anybody to process, you know, let alone a 16 year old kid. Right. Um, and I gave her a hug and, and I don't know, just like she kept holding on, you know, like she did when they put the, the gurney passes, you know, where's my baby? Where's Jesse at? Is she okay? She took her last breath when I gave her a hug. So she held on. <laughs> that's for sure. So it was tough. A lot of firsts that you had to go through as an adult, a young adult. Golly, I'm ugly crying on you. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to make me cry. I, I brought some tissue just in case because I was like, this is going to be a sad story. <laughs> yeah, no. So, you know, a lot of firsts that you have to go through. I, had to, I raised myself for a lot of it, you know, and I say that cautiously so. You know, my sister is 10 years older than me. My brother's 27 years older than I am. So, you know, my, my brother, he had a family at that point in time and he wasn't around. And my sister was, you know, 26 years old and was suddenly a mom, I guess, in the sense that she felt an obligation to, to be there and to kind of raise me. And, you know, I am super thankful to her and Kevin for that. Um, they didn't have to, but they did. So, and then my, um, my mom's sister, Aunt Jean Gerard, she is a couple years older than mom. She's still living. 
She is, that woman is spry. I hope when I'm in my late eighties one day, if the Lord lets me live that long, I am that chipper and ornery and, and spry. But that woman lived an hour away and she didn't miss a thing. She came to the competition. She came to the, you know, academic events and anything that mom would have been there for. That woman was there. I lost a mom and that was tough, but she didn't leave me alone. And I think that I'm that really helped those tough moments and those tough years because I had a heck of a, a strong group of women that she left rallying around me. So with that being said, I think that also has a lot to do with why I am the way that I am. You know, always afraid everybody leaves and, you know, you have those attachment issues and um, I've had to work through a lot of anxiety and a lot of therapy. <laughs> I have had a lot of therapy. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with making sure that you are on top of your mental health and wellness and being self-aware to know that there's triggers and the underlying causes for those triggers, but also to recognize that even though bad things happen, that the Lord does put other people and things in your life for a reason. And they might not, you know, make up for it. Right. But they're definitely there to help guide you. And, and I had, you know, my sister and I had my aunt Jean and, and I couldn't imagine having gone through and done life without either one of them. What was the grief process like for you as a 16 year old? I mean, obviously you're, sur- you were surrounded by people who showed up and were being there and supporting you and loving on you. But for yourself, what does that look like for a 16 year old? Oh gosh, it wasn't good. Um, it was tough. I, I honestly think I, I, for the next couple of years, I really struggled with depression and my anxiety went into overdrive and I kind of closed myself up. I was super bubbly on the outside. Nobody would have ever known anything was ever wrong with me. You know, my dad, he, he worked and he had to work through his own grief, right? So he wasn't there. So I had to work through a lot of the stuff living by myself, doing life as a 16-year-old that's now suddenly a, a, an adult, right? I'd get myself up for school in the mornings and get ready and go do life and not have the same layout as my peers, right? So I didn't have a chance for a long time, I think, to really process it. And my senior year of high school, I know that it really kind of was the melting and tipping point, so to speak. Um, I was going to school the first part of the day and the last half of the day because I was, I could have graduated early, but at that time, way back, you know, oh my goodness, like over two decades ago now, I'm aging myself, you couldn't really graduate early. So you just wrapped up early and I went to work. And I remember I worked for, I worked the Dairy Queen all through high school and all through college. And I uh, was off, it was, um, May. So we graduated the end of May. And back then the seniors had like two weeks where we didn't even go in at all for the first half of the day. You just showed up a couple of days for practice for graduation, then you were done. So during that two week time, I remember I, I happened to have a day off and I tried to work as much as I could because dad was gone. He was working. And then of an evenings, he was, you know, going out to his sisters, uh, my other aunt Jean, aunt Jean Powell, um, he would go out there and visit her because she had just lost her husband and, you know, they both kind of lean on each other. And then, you know, my sister had her husband and my brother had his 
wife at the time. So, you know, I didn't have anybody. And I think at that moment, I'm sitting there in the house where everything happened, where, you know, I'm, I'm gra- getting ready to graduate and go to college. And I think everything just kind of hit me all at once. And I, I did try to, I tried to commit suicide and I won't go into the details and the story, but, um, I am still here. Praise God. It did not work. And he had a bigger story for me to tell. So the best advice I can give anybody, whether it's you going through grief or, you know, a family member or a friend that you see going through grief, get that person into a a psychologist, a therapist. They need to talk with somebody. They need to figure out how to process all of these things that they're feeling and these questions and, you know, the anger and we've got to figure out all this stuff out. And really, I probably should have been in therapy before that it all happened, you know, being adopted, right? You, you don't think, you think the situation that you're in is perfect and then you don't have to talk through it. But when you're young and you're going through all these things and there's not that person that looks like you, right? And then you lose that one person that wanted you more than anybody in the world, right? And you've got all these things you're trying to figure out and you're only 16 years old, man. Like, 16, 18 years old, you're not an adult by any stretch of the imagination. We don't know everything at that age. Trust me, I thought I did. I did not. So make sure that you help people seek out help. That's not a weakness. Actually, quite the opposite. What are some cherished memories or lessons that your mom taught you that you carry with you today? Oh, wow. Uh, I wish I had more examples of this to give you because I was very young I would say that the biggest thing that mom instilled in all of us girls is do better than me. And, you know, my mom was amazing. My mom had a career before she had kids, you know, she worked at a bank and then she worked at a doctor's office and, you know, but my dad did very well for himself in the oil and gas business and she didn't have to work and she was a stay at home mom. And I think that's awesome. But I also know that it was very important for her her and dad had put away for my college and it was, you know, paid for and ready to roll before our, even before she passed away. And she instilled in all of us girls to do better and do things differently than she did. So I, I know from conversations with my father that, you know, mom had, mom knew and had told him that I wasn't going to be staying in, in West Virginia. Um, she probably would be super shocked that I'm back here right now, even though, we're probably not staying here because it's not the best for Corbin's um, uh, education, but she wanted me to go and do bigger and better things. And she wanted the same for Rita and Rita has gone out and killed it. And, you know, I like to think that I've done pretty okay. And uh, (laughs) so I think, and being tough, that was another thing. My mom was, my, my mom had a lot of attributes very much like your mom you know, if you're not bleeding, you're not dying, you're fine. Get up. And, you know, I, I saw a meme once that said, you know, I was five years old and I died once. And my mom, you know, said, you're not bleeding and get back up and get to it. So that's very much, that was my mom. She was tough. And she also wanted me to be tough, meaning, you know, don't, don't take crap from anybody and stand up for yourself, but do what's right. And I think that that's just been the way I've kind of lived. I don't have a lot of memories with her. I've I was normally shooed out of the kitchen because I was nicknamed Messy Jesse for a reason. So I was always kicked out because I was making messes. You know, we did, we went, did a lot of vacationing. We went to the beach and stuff as a kid or camping. I have those memories. 
but I wish I had some more the you know things that I've learned from her that I could share with my girls and pass on to them. I don't have that, but I have the next best thing, and I have my aunt Jean Gerard. So I'm able. To, I was able to learn a lot from her that I can pass on to my kiddos. So that's sweet. Before we move on, you know, you just describing that grief process leading up to um, wanting to commit suicide or the suicide attempt, your path could have looked way different. Oh, yeah. And you ended up taking a fairly traditional path. Like, you know, you didn't end up in jail. You didn't end up a drug addict. Yeah. What do you attribute that to? Like, you know, what led you to be who you are today? To come out as fairly normal, which I hate the word normal. I say that all the time. I hate that word because nobody's normal. But, you know, what led you to not take... To those paths to addiction or to some other way of numbing the pain? Well, first and foremost, my faith in, in Jesus and being a Christian, I did grow up in a Baptist household my entire life. From the moment they got me, I remember like the next day I was, I had my dedication to the Lord and they had the, the thing at the church and I have all those pictures and so I think that that obviously, not that I think I know, that obviously had a huge uh, impact in where I'm at now. Another thing, I mean, I, I didn't get to where I am without any bumps or bruises in the road. You know, I did, I did have, a, you know, a problem with alcohol when I was in, in college and I really had to get that out of my system. And because I was very, I was sheltered, right? So I, I definitely think that that had a big play in it. I was very sheltered. So I, I, it wasn't without bumps and bruises in the, in the road and the learning curves. But I also had in the back of my mind, the little bit I did know about my biological mother and, and father and family was they had always dealt with some type of addiction, whether it was alcohol or drugs. And there was, you know, it wasn't the best dynamic in DNA happening. And I think always being scared to end up as a statistic. Um, and I wanted to, obviously, I had the goal to be able to show my mom up in heaven, you know, she was looking down on me that I'm making you proud, right? So I think it was a culmination of a lot of different things. So you grew up and married my brother. <laughs> my little handsome hubby man. And you guys have three kids, two girls and a boy. The um, Corbin's in the middle. He's the boy. And he is nonverbal autistic. Yes, my Mr. Sweet Face. When did you first realize, I think something is different here? Yeah, um, pretty early on. So we... I'm wanting to say he was just a little over a year. We're close to that 18 month mark. And he was not hitting those milestones that um, the other kid, his age hit. You know, and I didn't have a very good thing to look back on with Janie because, see, Janie was developmentally delayed with her speech. So she was in speech therapy from the time she was two on and then to right around five years old. So the beginning of kindergarten, then she tested out of it. So. I didn't have a lot of things to go off of. Oh, well, your sister did this at this age. But I know from filling out those forms at the pediatrician's office that ask, you know, is he doing A, B, and C? And I just remember on an appointment, I'm going, nope, nope, no. Like we're not, we're not having any words. We're not really, we're babbling a little bit. 
but nothing coherent. At that point in time, you know, Chad and I had talked about it and he had said, oh, well, I think you'll be fine. You know, Janie was developing delayed with her speech and, you know, I was too. And it might just, that might be all that it is. And I said, well, let's ask somebody. So we started at the pediatrician's office. And then because he was under the age of three throughout the U.S., you have what some places call it birth to three or early intervention is what some states call it. and they have uh, folks that come out in the, every area of whatever state that you're in, and they will do an at-home evaluation. So they come out first, and they had a conversation with Chad and I, and finding out, you know, let's learn a little bit more about Corbin. What is he not doing? What are your concerns? And then after that intake, they send out a slew of their therapists. So you had uh, we had a psychologist that came. We had a speech therapist that came we had a whole bunch, Like there was, we had a team of five people and they all stuck after they had the intervention. And at that point in time, they didn't say or think that it was autism. They said it could be, but it could just be a developmental delay. So we started doing some therapies and they, we had weight belts and weight vests and weighted blankets and all of these things. And it just, it, he never really started talking. He would mimic what we said, but so he was about 18 months when we knew something's not right with our little fella. I mean, he's just sweet and lovey as could be, but he's just not hitting those milestones. And then um, he wasn't thriving at daycare. We did have him in daycare. I think he lasted maybe two weeks and he was just, he, he would rock in on his knees back and forth in the corner. He was overstimulated he would cry. He would do this an awfully lot. It's just, it wasn't a good fit. So um, we ended up pulling him out. And at that point in time is when I decided maybe I'll be a stay-at-home mom. So I went to be a stay-at-home mom and try to take care of him and kept Janie home. And it just, and he did his therapy, but he's just never, he's just never spoken except for what they call echolalia, which is he re says what we say. How do you communicate with him? So he, he can understand us plain as day. Like he doesn't have any, like I say this and I know it sounds bad, but of all three kids and they're all bright. I, I mean, I still say to this day, Corbin is probably my smartest child because he's so inept, like he's so in tune, I mean, to emotions and he can read the room way better than probably most adults can. Like he just knows if you're having a bad day, he's going to come and give you a hug and a kiss and curl up in your lap. Um, he understands completely what you say. He just can't communicate it back. So we have done some sign language, like he can say more since he was little, like he wants more or he's thirsty or thank you. Yes and no, um, like yes or no. But I would say largely it's, we kind of, we know him. We, we, we have that in tune communication where um, if he can't get, it across what he's wanting, he'll just hold our hand and show us. Um, so I've learned largely that certain babble sounds, like um, back when he was little, a bottle was baba. He could never say a bottle, but he was able to verbalize baba. So that's how that word and term came to be. So I wish I could say that it was some really cool creation of communication tools that we created to make it work, but it's just we know baba and he can communicate and give us a pretty good idea of what's happening and what he needs. It sounds like, you know, when they're 
young toddlers and they don't have, can, you know, they don't have a wor- lot of words yet, but you as the mom, you pretty much, you know, yeah. by the cry, you can tell what they, what's going on with them by the, you know, the pointing or the grunting or, you know, you kind of just have this like sense of, I know what he, what he needs or what he's wanting. You got it. And the, the cool thing with Corbin is he is able to verbalize some things. And it's not equilibrium. So he, because he has a vocabulary under 50 words, he's labeled as nonverbal, but he don't let that fool you because he knows how to say he, he's, he's, he's hungry. If you want a, he calls it a, a chicken cheesy sandwich. He's not actually wanting a chicken sandwich. He just wants a cheese sandwich put in the microwave because he doesn't like it crunchy because this is a texture thing. Um, he could tell you when he want, he could say Coke plain as day. Happy Roger, my dad, if you're listening to this, you did not hear me say that I'm giving the kids Coke. <laughs> um, but no, he, uh, he does. He, he like, he can say Coke and milk. And so he can say the basics now, but not at the very beginning. So how old is he now? We, we kind of just glazed right over that. <laughs> Forgot to mention how old he is. He is seven. So he is born in May. So he will be eight here in what? Next, yeah, he's about seven and a half. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so. what grade is he in, or is he considered in a grade, or how does that work? Oh, yeah. yeah, so he's in second grade, and he is in general ed, which is us neurotypical folks. That's our regular classroom. That's but us special uh, ed parents know that ge- that gen ed means the regular classroom. He's in there for sixty to seventy percent of his day. And then the rest of the time, he's in his special ed classroom. And that classroom consists right now of approximately nine kiddos, largely boys. So autism is an odd thing. It doesn't generally have a very large population of girls. It has some, but it, for whatever reason, generally tends to happen and occur in boys. So this is his first classroom. I think he has maybe one girl. But up until this point, every other classroom he's ever been in, is he's been in just all little dudes his age. And he's in there and they work on his math skills. And he has his uh, speech therapist that'll come in and do one-on-one therapy with him in there. He also has music therapy that happens. So he has his music therapy that'll happen during his special ed time. And he's more like one-on-one. So those parts of the day in the gen ed classroom where it might be content a curriculum that's a little bit over his head that he's just he's not going to grasp it like the neurotypical kiddos will that's the time that he would be in his specials so i know autism spectrum disorders very widely and we already said that he's nonverbal and you mentioned a little bit um some sensory issues with him so aside from being nonverbal and having some sensory issues with food what are uh, some of the other challenges he faces? Yeah, there's a lot. I love this quote. Chad always says it. He saw it online. And it really is so true is if you know one autistic kid, you know, one autistic kid, like every it's such a when they use that term spectrum, that is honestly the best way to put it. There's, you know, they have right, you know, high functioning and low functioning. And I, I quite frankly, don't know if I necessarily fully believe in that because Corbin would be put on that low functioning side of the house because he's nonverbal. 
But when you see how quickly he picks up on stuff and he's just got that, he's that, that, that curious engineering mindset. So he likes to take things apart and he could put it back together too. A lot of kids could not do that. So it is such a broad spectrum, but I think there's still a lot of nuances that every autistic parent of a quote unquote low functioning child would say they all have. And the first thing is, is going to be educational opportunities for them. So not every state is created equal when it comes to special needs, especially for autistic children. They are not special needs like some other forms that's out there. Um, every single one of them is different. They learn differently. And it's very important to, to be able to get them into a place that also has therapy available that can help them. And then they can implement this into their classroom. And that's ABA therapy. A lot of folks, you know, some people think, oh, it's so mean. I don't. I don't see that. I, I think the, the BCBAs that's worked with Corbin in the past have been amazing. They've been the opposite of mean, loving, open folks who they just push him. They pushed him to try to, to communicate and to learn and to do better and be better. But you don't have that here, for example, in West Virginia. We've been here. We came back shortly after uh, the pandemic hit. And my career went 100% remote. And we thought it would be great to be close to, you know, this side of the family up here. I know we've been down south for a long time. And we said, you know, let's move up because my, my kids are my dad's only grandchildren. So that'd be awesome to, to have that relationship for them. And we've been on the wait list for ABA therapy for a year and a half. So my son went from having it to not having it for a year and a half. And there's just nobody like the state of West Virginia is just, everybody has a wait list. There's no autistic schools around. There's one in Weirton. He's been on that wait list since we came. I actually followed up with him a couple months ago and they can't even tell me where he's at on the wait list because the wait list really hasn't even moved. It's, it's just, it's sad. So that's a huge obstacle um, is just making sure that the therapy is available and it's affordable that you know that you have waivers in in place and a lot of states have wait lists there's west virginia um they have uh, what's called the um developmental disability waiver because it's called IDD and part of that waiver we we got on it and it is all it's based upon corbin it's not based upon us or our you know financial information at all so I, i'm glad that it takes it into consideration for him and what it does is you have uh, Medicaid that covers, uh, you know, a lot of his services or so we thought, but the state of West Virginia does not cover ABA therapy, which is exactly what we needed it for. We thought that this would help, you know, get him off that wait list for a year and a half, get him into ABA therapy. No, they don't cover it. So they cover speech therapy. They cover occupational therapy. and if you are not working, which doesn't apply to me, then they'll they'll pay you to stay home and watch your kids. Or you can use that to go for respite or to pay for somebody else to watch your, your special needs kids. But again, when you're in a small town, it's hard pressed to even find family that feels comfortable to watch Corbin, let alone, you know, having to find a stranger and go through that background. So I think that's a, another huge one. And then I mean, I can go on forever. The therapy and getting him the healthcare that he needs, that's a, a huge one. School, education, uh, being able to 
do normal things like go to church as a family. That's kind of null and void here. I know a while back I had said something and I have reached out to so many churches around here and I'm not, I won't call out by name, but you know, I've reached out and communicated with them and said, Hey, you know, we were at that time, you know, we were newer to the area. I have a a son who's nonverbal autistic. He gets easily, you know, sensory overload. Do you guys have any special classrooms that he could partake in so he can go to Sunday school and then we can go to church. And, and it was just, if they got back to us, it was no, sorry, we can't help you. If they got back to us nine times out of 10, you can just see where they've read the message and not going to, I'm just going to pray for her, but I'm not going to respond to her. So that was, (laughs) that was something that was very frustrating. And I remember I put a post up on Facebook and was like, man, just these people, they want you to come to church, but they only want your neurotypical kids to come to church. They don't have anything out there for your special kiddos so they can come and they can worship. And just because he's nonverbal and he's easily overstimulated doesn't mean that this kid doesn't have a soul. Doesn't mean that he doesn't have the, the wherewithal to know, you know, Jesus. And then he came and died for our sins. And like, he's, he's a smart kid. He's just, he learns differently than, you know, maybe that kid over there or that kid over there. And it can be a lot, but there's, we've got to have something in place. And a lot of folks said, Oh, you can come to our church and you can come to our church. And first off, I love that. I thought that was amazing. It was so kind uh, for them to offer that, but you tried to go to the church and there's, it's just, if there's nothing for, he's still going to get overstimulated. There's nothing in place for him to be able to, like, I don't know if somebody's like, Oh, well you can bring him and I can sit back and watch him. I'm like, what sweet. Uh, but there's so much more to it that I just want somebody to babysit my kid, right? I want him to have that environment to be able to learn and to worship and to be able to do it where he can comprehend it and he feels safe. So long story short, that is a battle. And I, I think we have to really be in a larger city, you know, go back to a larger area. Like when we were in Dallas, there was some churches there that had autistic or sensory special rooms so the kiddos can go join and in on their kiddo worship and Bible study and Sunday schools and all that fun stuff. So I just think sometimes you don't get that in the small towns. Yeah, I was sitting here thinking about anywhere that I've lived. I don't think I've ever encountered a church that had anything for um, autistic children. Yeah, it's a, it's sad. We, yeah, it's so sad. Yeah, we've only seen it in um, Nashville, Tennessee. When we were there, there was a church that we went to that had a special service for their sensory. They called them their sensory pals. And then down in Dallas, Texas, where we lived. So down south, which ironically always gets a pretty bad rap for autism services and special ed services altogether. And I will say that is not well earned, at least in our experience where we've been, because they he's always had some of the best teachers and the best education. His hours were more than double than what he gets now. There was opportunities for him, splash pads and you know, there's zoos here doing all these, you know, boo with the zoo, but they don't do anything like even do a, an early, you know, one hour for those sensory babies to be able to do boo with the zoo with their families and stuff. But they don't think about that. That's not, you know, that's that's not on their radar. But in those larger areas, it is. And I just think sometimes, sadly, 
you really, if you have the opportunity to be near those larger locations, then you need to do it, which is, we're back at that, that square now is, you know, I could be anywhere and because I work remote, Chad can be anywhere. So, you know, we tried it and I just, unfortunately, it's just not the best situation here. So we're going to have to go back to a larger location where it's better for not just Corbin, but for the girls, they have more opportunities too, but you just come up with a lot of these situations that people don't think of for special kiddos. I know when we come across kids that are nonverbal or even anybody, not just kids, you know, when you're coming across somebody who has a nonverbal disability, it's often hard to look past that disability because that's so obvious into who they are. So can you describe what is Corbin like? What's his personality like? What is he, his interest? Well, he is properly nicknamed my Mr. Sweetface. And there truer words could not be spoken about that sweet boy. He is a little love bug. Very smiley, happy baby. He's been like that since he's been a baby. He has one dimple on his right cheek. Um, and he'll smile and flash his little dimple and he'll give you hugs and kisses. He'll be playing like he was playing uh, the other day, and he just gets up in the middle of his playtime. And he just puckers and does that kissy noise all the way across the living room to give hugs and kisses. And then he just goes back and finishes what he was doing. Um, He's a a nosy little dude. That is for sure. (laughs) He likes to see what's going on. And it's always in the places he's not supposed to be. So going down into the basement and tearing into stuff in storage or, but he will find it. And you, you can't hide anything from that kid. I, I mean, he's like MacGyver. He'll find a way to get whatever it is that he wants. He loves penguins. That is his happy thing. He has loved penguins for years. When we were down south, one of his teachers, Miss Driscoll, had given him, when we left, a stuffed penguin. And he was in pre-K then. So three and a half, four years old, he still has that penguin. He has to, it has to get a bath so it gets washed every single week. Because he takes it with him everywhere. He sleeps with it. It goes to school with him. I mean, that that boy is obsessed with, with, with that penguin and all things penguin. He is a love bug with his sisters unless they get on his nerves. Or they try to take the penguins and then he can get a little aggressive. And he will, you know, push them a little bit. And then they get it real quick that that is Bubby's and I cannot play with Bubby's toys. So he is... You know, that's pretty normal for autistic kiddos. They have something that's theirs and they do not like to share. But otherwise, we've actually been pretty lucky with Corbin. He likes to, he, he'll share. He'll, he's, he likes to make new friends. So he's done through an autism group that's here. They have activities all the time for the kiddos. So we just finished uh, swim lessons at the college up here, Fairmont State College. And their swim team did sw- swim lessons for him. So that's another fun fact about Corbin is he loves water. That kid would be outside and in water all day, every day, if you would let him. Wasn't there a house that you guys lived in that he broke out and got into their pool? They were in the pool, though, when he got in, right? (laughs) So, yes. So, Corbin was, I think, about four years old. And we had, you know, their fence all the way around. But he apparently had figured out how to finagle the one door. Because we never put a padlock on that one side because you had to move this latch and you had to 
push it up and over and, and had to come back down just to get out. And it was pretty high. And I know Chad and I was like, oh, we don't need to put a padlock. I don't think he's going to be able to figure it out. We were wrong. We were wrong. We had a bad lapse in parental judgment. Padlock went up that next day, but he did. He got out. There was a pool party happening right next door. And he could see some way through those little itty bitty cracks that there was a pool there and he loves water. And at that point in time, he had no sense of fear, whereas now he's scared of everything and thank God for it. But at that time he was not. And they didn't have their front door locked. So he figured out that little booger how to get out of that gate. He went in their front door like he lived there. That was his house. (laughs) He went running through, took his underoos off somewhere during the course of his yeah, going through that person's house to just imagine his little booty his naked as a shaver. <laughs> his little dude running and he jumped right into the pool and the, the neighbors, thank the Lord, they were having a pool party because that could have been bad. Like imagine if they weren't around and they left their door open and he went running. And so anyways. Bad parent moment. We saw it happen, but Wimberly was a newborn at this time, and I was feeding her, and my husband was on the toilet. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. (laughs) That Caldwell Colon. He was on the toilet. So I remember I had to quickly put Wimberly down in her little napper, and I went bolting to grab my naked, very wet four-year-old son from the pool. So, yes, he won't do that now because he's super scared. But, yeah, he gave me a heart attack. I'm pretty sure I aged at least 10 years that day. I can just imagine the people in the pool looking up and this little naked four-year-old comes (laughs) running. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. They probably thought we were the worst parents. And you know what? We probably, in, in that moment, I think everyone's had that bad parent moment. But, oh, my gosh, I felt like the worst parent. That was awful. But he's okay now. He's lived to see the day we can go play in water and splash around and do it safely. So thank God for that. Yes. So you mentioned how he is with his sisters. You know, what's their relationship like in relation to him and in relation to you? Like, did they feel resentful? I mean, I know they're little, they can't really probably articulate that, but do they feel like he's getting more attention? I could see where they probably could think that at times, because sometimes you do have to give him a little more attention. But I, I, I will say he's got a very strong-willed girl flanking either side of him. So first off, he doesn't need to talk ever in life if he doesn't want to, because trust me, Janie and Wimberly will do all the talking for him. That They do that. Janie is, she'll look at him and she'll read his face. She goes, oh, well, Bubby's feels this way or Bubby wants this. Like she will literally, and he'll just look up at her and he'll just wait for her to like, let us know what he's thinking or feeling because she communicates for him. Janie is very much the loving silent protector, meaning she's not as verbal, like, Oh, come here, Bubby. I love you. And she'll, she'll coddle him. Then you have Wimberly who, if he does something wrong, she'll be the first one to smack his butt. And she's only three, mind you. She'll give him a spanking. She'll tattle on him. Oh, Bubby, you don't do that. But they love them. They love him very, very much. They're very protective over him. Wimberly is probably the the closest to him. And I think he probably gets on his nerves the most. But that 
that little stinker loves her brother. I mean, since they were itty bitty, they would, she wants to curl up and nap with him and she wants to go and do what Bubby does and she makes sure Bubby's included. And uh, I remember it's probably been a couple years or uh, I'd say probably Wimberly was probably close to about a year and, and Chad and I were having a conversation. You know, this, these tough conversations every parent has to have of preparing the life without us, you know, working on that will and who do they go to if, Something happens and we're both in an accident or, 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 you know, and then we have the conversation of Corbin. We don't know what things are going to look like for him down the line, but I fully anticipate Corbin will forever be home. Mm-hmm. We will, we will more than likely never be empty nesters. That won't happen. We will always have Bubba. So when we talk about our retirement plan and what we're going to do, it's what the three of us are going to do. And the girls can join us if they want. Right. And I remember, you know, Chad, who is not, an, as you know, he is not an emotional being. He's not a crier, but he got choked up and he said, man, Jesse, what, what are we going to do one day if we, you know, we die and we leave him? Who's going to take care of him? And Janie, I didn't even know, was listening to this conversation. And she was playing. She just stopped what she was doing. She turned around. She walked over to, to Chad and she said, Daddy. I'll take care of him. Aww. And he lost it. And I lost it. And she's like, you guys are weird. And then she turns around <laughs> and she walks away. Like, why are you crying? But that in and of itself really spoke to their dynamic. And sometimes I know she might feel, and we've had these conversations with her, it might feel like Bubby gets more attention, but Bubby needs more attention because of these reasons. But we also are very cognizant to have what we call girl time where it's just mommy and Janie or mommy, Janie and, and Wimberly. And, you know, Chad will try to have, you know, he'll play video games and do dad things with her. So we make it a point for them to have one-on-one time with each of us. So they don't feel like it. Bubby gets all the attention and we're just kind of here now that we've gotten a little bit better with that as they are getting older, especially with Janie and doing things that she likes and getting involved in it a little bit more. They do piano and, you know, what she likes to be girly, but she also likes to play video games and do sports and stuff. So I don't ever see any animosity. I think every sibling gets annoyed. They fight like cats and dogs. They'll get annoying just with one another, like every sibling does. I'm sure, obviously, John Hayden and, and Juliet probably want to strangle each other nine times out of ten, but they love each other, right? That's their sibling. And that's the same thing with these three. Um, I think the girls are probably more so protective than I would have thought they'd be. So, for example, Janie recently did, she wanted to do a pageant, which is shocking because she's my introvert. But she said, Mommy, I want to do a pageant. So I said, okay, cool. Let's do it. And they had, uh, she was practicing her questions because the little junior miss division, they had, you know, you got the questions in advance so they can work on it. And one of the questions was, who do you admire most and why? And we're practicing, you know, we're going through and, and I just want her to give me her answer from her heart. And then, you know, we can help her tweak the, the verbiage as needed. And of course, Chad goes, well, we all know it's going to be me. And I, and I didn't say anything. I just giggled. And then that little stinker goes, Corbin is who I admire most. He doesn't communicate like me and you. And he lives in a world where nobody understands him. And that is so brave. And of course, we I'm a crier, as we are all very well aware of by now. Uh, I started crying. And I, I realized in that moment, 
that even though she's eight and she's only 12 and a half months older than him, man, that kid is smart and she, she gets it. And that is sadly more than I can say for some adults, but I know if the Lord calls me home before Corbin, I got two very strong girls that will love that boy and take care of him to no end. So that is very comforting to, to know that. And they're only eight and three. So don't worry. I got plenty more times to cry and, and <laughs> for examples as they get older, but um, they're close and they love him very much. So I'm, I'm thankful. I was listening to an interview with somebody who um, it's a, it's Rosie O'Donnell. I know pretty much nobody likes her now, but she does have a, uh, it's weird to bring her up. I think she's funny. You know, she's not really in the spotlight anymore, um, but she was on the Kelly Clarkson show and she said that, you know, she has five kids and the four she adopted kind of right after each other. But the fifth one, she kind of adopted late in life. She's way, she's only eight. She's way younger than all the other ones. And so it's just kind of her and that eight-year-old at home now. And she has autism, the little girl does. And she was just saying that when she first realized she had autism, you know, she just didn't, she was like, there's no manual for this. Like, I don't know, not, you know, this is completely different than any parenting I've ever done before. But she was like, I cannot imagine life without her now. And she nope. was like, she has taught me so much that I never, I never thought I would needed to know any, you know, but she's just taught me so much about life. So my question, it's twofold. Number one, what has Corbin taught you about life? Yeah. And number two, what's your advice to parents who maybe have that 18 month old that are kind of starting that journey of like, okay, I, I think we might have some some challenges, some issues here that we need to work through. So what's your advice for them? And then also, you know, what has Corbin taught you? Yeah. So that is a huge one. What he's taught me is, and I say this and I mean it to my core, is in my all of my time as an adult on this earth, I have learned to communicate prolifically and from your heart way more with Corbin than I ha- could have ever done going to, to, to college and having a career. Like he has taught me the very epitome of communication, of love, being understanding. And I think really accepting people and meeting them where they're at, not always trying to fix them. I think that is an innate ability that a lot of women have, especially moms, we want to fix things. I want to make it better. And you know, this isn't something that you make better. It's not something that you fix. It you, you learn to love him for what he is and how he is. And you kind of adapt to, to them. It's the whole thing of make him normal. Like that's, I wouldn't want him any other way. And I know some people are like, Oh, I would, you know, but he's Corbin. That's what makes him him. So I've learned uh, acceptance and I've learned that life is not always going to pan out the way that you have envisioned it, you know, growing up thinking you're going to get married and have all these kids and that they're going to be fine. And no, no, like life, that's, life isn't like that. But that sweet little dude, he might never contribute to, 
you know, the, the GDP and he, he might never do anything like you and I do, right? He might not go out there in that work world and do quote unquote normal, but you know what he is going to do is he is going to make this world a better place because of his smile and his love and his infectious little grin and dimples. And I'm a better person because I get to be his mom. And I know that sounds super cheesy, but that kid, you spend some time with them and he can, he could be a lot. He can have his moments where he could be just exhausting. But I tell you, all my kids love me, but I always joke and tell Ted, nobody loves me the way Corbin loves me. Like he'll come in from, he'll search me out. I'll be on a call and he gets off the bus and he'll come hunt me down in the home office just to give me a hug and a kiss. And then he scurries on his way. Advice for those parents who might have been, you know, me back in 2017 with a little 18 month old that you just weren't hitting those milestones. Talk to your pediatrician. That was our first course of action is have those conversations with them. And then that's when we found out that there were, you know, birth to three or early intervention programs out there available to you. So it doesn't matter how much money you make or if you have amazing insurance or you have terrible insurance, if you're a six-figure income or you're barely four-figure income, whatever the case may be, they're out there to help you. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Just ask questions. Learn about the waivers in your states. That's a huge one. What is out there that you can take a hold of? Because again, you can have that you know, six figure job and a really good insurance. But when you start adding in all these therapies and medicines and I mean, it adds up. And then it also is important to have a community uh, that, you know, parents that get you. And unfortunately, if you're in a smaller place like I am right now in West Virginia, you don't really have that community physically. So sometimes you have to find those other parents out there that are like you maybe in a Facebook group or someplace, you know, find folks that go through their similar things that you do and ask them questions and find out what works for them and where do they go to the doctor and what was their therapy. And so ask questions, be curious. And if somebody tells you something and it just doesn't feel right to your gut, don't listen to them. Keep fighting for your kid because you're the only one that can advocate for them because they can't advocate for themselves. And sometimes doctors can be wrong. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I enjoyed it. It was so nice to have an hour-long adult conversation with you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for joining us today on This Is My Story. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more inspiring stories, make sure to hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. This has been Jesse's story. What's yours?